Yesterday night, less than 50 days before the 2019 elections, we hosted Omar ben Jacob at the Ulpan to learn about Israeli political system and those fighting to oust Netanyahu from power. Omar ben Jacob is a journalist, a senior news editor at Haaretz in English, and a good friend of the Ulpan. In his 90-minute talk, Omar explains the current political situation in Israel, the difference between right, center, and left, what are the real political blocs, and the different possible outcomes for the elections as well as answering questions from the audience. Enjoy! Hi everyone, thank you so much for having me. This is, I think, my seventh or eighth time talking at the Ulpan, and it's, and though I'm very close friends with Jerome, I, I genuinely think this place is amazing, and I love coming here, and I love doing these events, uh, because there's something interesting about uh, this place, and I think it has a very unique atmosphere, so that wasn't me just promoting the place, it's a genuine thing. Um, <laughs> so, just very briefly about myself and what we're going to do today. Um, we're going to talk about the Israeli elections. I want to make an effort to speak slow, because I speak very, very fast. And I'll make an effort to speak slow. Um, this, le this lecture is almost a coming full circle for me here, because my, my the first lecture I gave here was in the 2000. 13 you know, election? Yes. 2013 election. Uh, wow, that's a long time ago. Um, and, um, and so in that sense, it, 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 there's something interesting to revisit the kind of uh, these themes and come back to them. Uh, this time I think it's boring. Uh, last time I thought it was crazy. Um, so I'll try to kind of convince you uh, that it's more boring than crazy. But uh, most of this lecture is built on questions that we've collected from you and questions that I kind of assume that people want to answer, uh, want answered. Um, first, a short disclaimer about myself and a short plug. So I'm Omar Jacob. I was born in New York City and I was raised in Tel Aviv. Uh, I'm a senior editor at Alex. Nothing I say here represents Alex. I'll just say that one more time. Nothing I say here represents Alex. I'm an employee of a newspaper. I do not represent the newspaper. I don't speak to the newspaper. And I'm not here as, a, as an official representative. Um, fun fact, I also write about Wikipedia. I think it's interesting. I think you should also think it's interesting, but that's for another lecture. If any of these things seems interesting to you, this is the selling point. Follow me on Twitter. Okay. And now the lecture. Um, ah, one more thing about the lecture, and one more important thing about me. I'm very liberal, and I'm very left-wing. Uh, if you find that obnoxious, it's okay. You won. I lost. So let's put that aside, and now move on. Um, if there are Israelis here, uh, please identify yourself, because the lecture is built for non-Israelis. Um, and I would like to know if there are Israelis here. Um, okay. No, it's perfect. Uh, I, too, am Israeli, and we, we carry it in style, but still. Um, if, uh, just be a, be de like, if you find small factual mistakes, they're not mistakes, I'm just making it, streamlining it, because Israeli politics is among the most complex and convoluted political systems in the world. It makes it very fun to follow for those who are into it, but it also makes it very hard to understand to those who are not. So just that's in terms of where I'm coming from. I am biased in the sense that I'm left-wing, but it also doesn't matter because as I will now convince you, there's no more left and there's no more right in Israel. And generally, Israel has become a very, very non-political country. Anyone want to guess why? That's right, if you said Netanyahu in your heart, but we're afraid to say it out loud for fear of being arrested, that's the reason. Um, so Netanyahu, King Bibi. Um, it's hard not to be impressed by Netanyahu, and this is the last and only positive thing I will ever say about him. Uh, Netanyahu is probably the best politician in the world. 
So I don't know who follows politics, but like he's like the Messi of politics, okay? He's like, th there's the game before him and the game after him. And he's so good at it that I think people from mostly Eastern Europe are now coming to learn to see how it's done. So my apologies to all Polish or Hungarian people here. I apologize that we're now exporting this style of government to your country, but this is what is happening. So what, what, why King Bibi? So Bibi, this is, I don't know who knows this, but this is Bibi's second round as prime minister. It's not his second term as prime minister, but the second round uh, after Rabin was uh, assassinated. But never mind. But in the early, like he had a, he had a first tenure that lasted until uh, 1999, um, from 1996, after Shimon Peres took over for uh, Rabin, who was murdered. And uh, Bibi had a very, a very kind of mediocre candidacy. So his term as prime minister was not that interesting politically. It was a time of mostly economic liberalization for Israel. And generally, Netanyahu was one of his biggest claims to fame is that he like brought kind of what we now call neo neo-capitalist or neo-con economy and discourse to Israel, and he, and he actually did. So in his, in his benefit, and I think this is part of the reason that he's a very good politician, is that he does actually see where certain trends are going. So Netanyahu invented, and I mean invented, not latched onto, but invented a number of discourses that we all know and love or despise today. So among Netanyahu's biggest claims to fame is that he invented what we in Israel call hasbara, so public diplomacy. So this idea that Israel's problem is not the fact that it's involved in an ongoing occupation, but rather that people talk about the fact that it's involved in an ongoing occupation, this idea is Netanyahu. And this whole idea that Israel needs its own kind of unique operation of public diplomacy is something that Netanyahu actually invented. And I'm not, Netanyahu grew up within Israel's, Israel's uh, diplomatic ranks. He did not grow up in a political kind of structure. And, uh, and this was a big thing for him. Um, the other big thing that Netanyahu invented, and this I cannot understress this tonight, but the whole anti-terror discourse, so this whole kind of Dick Cheney, Bush, catching Arabs no matter what, this is Netanyahu was talking about this stuff literally before it was cool. So Netanyahu has a book on how to beat terror before anyone was talking in this way. Um, and in that sense, he, 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 is, he, he has ridden a certain wave and he does kind of understand uh, the wider world in that way. Um, so liberalizing, so what's his claims to fame? He invented Asbara, invented anti-terror discourse. His brother was also killed in action in what is arguably the most famous Israeli military operation, um, the airport at Antebe. I don't want to go into it, but needless to say, Netanyahu has uh, made a name for himself on the fact that his brother was killed in what was genuinely a very daring operation. Uh, another Israeli prime minister was also present there, uh, Barak. Um, what else can I tell you about uh, Bibi? So what is Bibi's legacy, and why do I say that there's no left or right in Israel? Netanyahu has dedicated the better part of his second round as prime minister, as in since assuming power again from 2009. So we're now nearing almost 10 years of this. Um, I think, I want to say this is the third government, but I could be wrong. Um, yes, third, it's the third government. And if Netanyahu wins this upcoming election, he overtakes David Ben-Gurion as Israel's longest serving prime minister, uh, which is very, very impressive in a sense. Um, because then Bouillon founded Israel, and that comes with lots of credit. <laughs> if you found the country, you get to be like, be like, he's more time than George Washington, that's very impressive. Um, uh, so what kind of characterized Bibi, and why do I say there's no left and no right? Netanyahu has dedicated the majority of his political career not to advancing any specific worldview. People think of Netanyahu as right-wing, which is, in a very kind of general sense, true. He comes from a right-wing household, he holds conservative opinions, his political bedfellows are right-wing, but 
Per se, his policy is not so much, it's, it's not that you could qualify Israeli's, like his policy as proactively right-wing. Netanyahu's main claim to fame is that he has created a situation of stagnation and status quo. Netanyahu's long-term bet on Israel's position has been that Israel has de facto won the war against the Palestinians, against its Arab neighbors, and generally the second kind of, from 2000, Israel is in a very strong position, and that therefore it's in our interest not to, 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 to change the situation. Which is, in a sense, the classic conservative position. If you come from British politics, that's very conservative. But it, I don't think he's acting from that place. I think generally Netanyahu is very pragmatic uh, and very, very selfish. He's very into himself and preserving his power. Um, and I think that he believes that the right way to do that is to be very right wing. And he does veer very much to the right. But it's not. A, I don't think it's that fundamental of an issue. Uh, what else has he done? He's demonized the left and right and and, and uh, like human rights NGOs. Um, this is, I cannot explain how much of a big thing this is. So in Israel today, there is no, there is one of the most insulting things you could call someone is a human rights activist. Uh, and there's a political reason for that, and that political reason is Netanyahu, generally. Um, he's upset the media market. So what does that mean, uh, very briefly? Um, Netanyahu, through what we call the Israel Yom newspaper, and through a number of other kind of moves, has shifted the Israeli media market from being very, very left-wing, which was something he always complained about, which is true. It's comprised a lot by people like me, and we do not like Netanyahu, and he's right that way. Uh, but he's actually intervened in the media market to such an extent that the, the, the Israeli media cannot be said to be left-wing today. The only left-wing paper is Haaretz, and we're not even left-wing, we're liberal, which is not the same thing. Um, and, and the rest of the media market is falls along kind of a more important axis, which is the axis that I want to spend, that I want to argue is the only important one. With Netanyahu or against Netanyahu, okay? So like in the good old days of kings and queens, there's only one political position question within the kingdom. Do you support the king or do you not support the king? The rest of the questions are secondary to that. So now let's delve a little bit into Netanyahu. Ah, yes, this is, uh, this is Netanyahu at the beginning of his career when he was Israel's UN ambassador. Uh, just quickly, I want to run through his uh, career because I think it really represents the lack of kind of a lot of the stuff that I was talking about. So he was a UN ambassador, then he was deputy foreign minister. Uh, he won the war with a slogan that every Israeli will tell you is very famous. Paris, Paris will divide Jerusalem. And this, the reason I show this is that this slogan is actually quite amazing. Because there was no, there was no, <laughs> Jerusalem was not up for debate at the time. So this is a very kind of dirty American politic trick that Bibi imported to Israel uh, with the help of a pollster called um, Arthur Lichtenstein, who passed away. Um, and the slogan is exactly Bibi, exactly Bibiism, because it's not telling you anything about Bibi. He's just telling you what the other guy will do and frightening you about it. Paris will divide Jerusalem. And what is Bibi? Not Paris. Um, that worked so well that he lost in 1999 to El Barak. Uh, and from 1999 to 2003, he made what we call money, uh, <laughs> meeting, making great friends like uh, what was the, you know, the, what was the who ran for president? Um, Mitt Romney. Uh, Mitt Romney was his friend. He, he was in America. He worked for some VC fund called Kane Finance, Kane International, or something like that. And they, they became friends. And generally, he became very well connected to the kind of right wing. The rich American right wing. Uh, he comes back in 2003 as the Goods Finance Minister. Uh, in 2006, he loses the race for the P for being Prime Minister. 
this is a recurring theme. Netanyahu does not actually win elections. This is the biggest myth about Netanyahu. Netanyahu has won two of the four elections which have resulted in him becoming prime minister. Again, he doesn't win elections, he's just the best politician in the game. So he, he, he gains power through other means, which are all legitimate within the Israeli system, but he does not necessarily win elections. Not only does he not win elections, he is the proud owner of his Likud's party worst showing ever. So under his, uh, under his leadership, when he ran, the Likud brought, I think it was 12 Knesset seats, which is very, very low for a party that has historically been the second largest party in Israel. Uh, unlike all Israeli politicians who lose in elections, Netanyahu does not walk away. Netanyahu stayed in the Knesset despite, despite losing and headed the opposition. And um, in 2009, he didn't win the election, but regained power, which we'll hear about a little bit more later. Uh, this is a slide that I love and I use in every lecture I do about Bibi. This is the essence of what Bibiism is. I'm going to read this out loud, so follow with me. This is an Israeli journalist describing what Netanyahu is. For his voters, Netanyahu is like an insurance policy. We hate the insurance companies. We don't believe a word their agents say. And we know that despite their promises, when the moment comes and we need them, they won't actually be there for us. And nonetheless, we buy their insurance. Bibi is his electorate's insurance. And when they need to choose between Bibi insurance and any other politician, even if they're not sure, when the moment comes, they will always prefer the policy they know. It is, after all, life insurance. <laughs> and the joke about life insurance is that this is, it's, it's a paraphrase about Bibi's, uh, I think it was two elections ago, his, uh, his election slogan was, Hachaim Atzman, life itself. Which if, if so I don't know how political threats come, but I think that's pretty, if my election promise to you is life itself, then I think that's <laughs> It's hard to compete. That's also kind of frightening and threatening also. So this is Bibiism. It's not left. It's not right. It does have certain right-wing things, but in anything, I would call it illiberal democracy. But this is kind of what it is. It's built on incitement and demonization of political opponents. I'm not saying this because I'm a friend. I'm saying this as what I genuinely, genuinely believe to be an objective description of how Netanyahu acts. Everyone who falls wrong with Netanyahu is automatically left, labeled a leftist. Uh, people who do not follow the nuances of Israeli politics do not understand how obscene this has become. So just off the top of my head, the settler that was appointed to be the chief of police by Netanyahu and is religious, we are now expected to believe is left-wing. Uh, the attorney general who is religious and comes from a very religious right-wing household is left-wing. And you can kind of get the vibe, so this is kind of where things are heading to. Um, so it's not left or right. The biggest question you all ask me, why now? Um, the answer is not politics, but Netanyahu's personal survival. This is, not my, this is not my opinion. This is just the way things are playing out. Uh, so Netanyahu is now facing four big corruption scandals. I scratched out the one that, that, is not, that, is, that it's probably not going to flesh out into anything. Uh, but he is actually going to face indictment charges uh, in at least two of these three cases. Um, Israeli law is a bit... I don't, weird, I think. I don't know. It's, it's, it's generally unclear if someone can be in office while they're indicted. For ministers, they had to like create a special rule for it. In Israel, for example, mayors can literally be mayors from jail. They had to create a law to change that after there was three mayors on their way to jail and getting reelected. They were like, okay, we have to just like stop. If you're in jail, you can't be. Okay. So 
they had to like legislate that specifically. Like it wasn't, and no one, no one assumed that that made sense. So Netanyahu is also kind of banking on this kind of just situation. He's not currently under indictment. This is very important because he's not under indictment. The police have recommended indicting him, and now the attorney general, who he appointed himself, uh, will have to decide uh, what to do with this. Um, and Netanyahu doesn't want to face doesn't want to be tried in the courts, he wants to be tried in the courts of public opinion. That's why we have elections. So very, now you know what, I won't talk to you about the the, 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 the crimes themselves are very kind of your run of your mill, general corruption stuff, his friends buy him gifts, these friends turn out to be not friends, but people with interests, their interests are then advanced. That's generally the deal. The only one that's kind of interesting is the last one, the case 4000, um, which has to do with um, case 2000 has to do with Netanyahu's attempt to negotiate better coverage. So Israel's most popular newspaper is called Idiot It's not Israel Ayom, which Bibi de facto owns. Uh, so Idiot is a problem because it's critical, it doesn't like Bibi. Uh, so he tried to negotiate for a while to get better coverage. But it didn't work out. Okay, that's like only moderately illegal. This is actually illegal because case 4000 is crazy because not only did he do the same thing with a very popular website called Wala, we actually know what he gave in return because Wala is owned by Bezik. Bezik is the people you, if you have landlines, you're paying them for your landlines. If you have internet, you're paying them for your internet. And what turns out is that the reason that Wala, the news site, gave you good coverage is because Bezik, which they share an owner, is now getting regular, like regulatory benefits. So taxes go down for Bezik and so on and so forth. They get better deals. Uh, but this just shows you how media obsessed with how, how media obsessed now is, and how much it's not a, a, a real political debate. Uh, so Netanyahu wants to be tried in the court, in the pub, court of public opinion. We're expecting indictments any day now. So the, the indictments are. We were preparing for this Thursday. It's probably going to be next Thursday. Um, but the attorney general is going to have to bite the bullet and come out and say Netanyahu is accused of this, so on and so forth, and we now have to go to a trial, which is how criminal justice usually works. But Netanyahu wants to avoid that. So he wants to, what he's hoping is that he'll win the election, and then there'll be a feeling that he can't be indicted, or he can't face trial, because he'll be indicted for sure. Um, and in this sense, I call this the most boring election ever, because you don't know this, but this actually election is an exercise. It's not a real election, it's a as-if election. We're doing it, the results will be respected. But within six months, or within nine months, or within a year, there will be another election, which will be the important the one, will be the real important one. Because that will be the election in which Netanyahu will either have to step down, or go to prison, or he'll be fighting for his life. We are not at the constitutional crisis point yet. Like with Trump, we have not yet reached the point where the assumption that these people will not give up power because of the rule of law is being checked. But we might reach that day, and not so far off in the future. And by the way, in that sense, I'm more optimistic about Netanyahu than about Trump. But I'm sure that Netanyahu will, no, I, I, I mean that genuinely, but Netanyahu, for all his faults, and for all he's a very, very intelligent person, he's very well read, and I believe his dedication to, to Israel at some very basic level. Uh, Trump, that's not the case, and, and, and I think Netanyahu, though he, he, he carries around a massive sense of victimhood, no, I don't think he'll destroy the country. He'll bring it close, but <laughs> I don't think he'll destroy it. Um, okay, so... <laughs> the pivot was supposed to work smoother. Um, so, 
Netanyahu wants to try to inform public opinion. Um, and this leads us to the kind of general question of how the Israeli elections work, because Netanyahu's move for this to work, he has to stay in power. And as I told you, he doesn't actually win the election. He gets not small amount of votes, but he's not the winner, you know, in the sense that, you know, in the same way that Trump, for example, genuinely, you know, won the election, according to the American system. So Bibi doesn't, doesn't get those kind of results. So this is going to be the most boring part of the lecture, because I'm going to have to explain Israeli governance to you and the Israeli system of government. Um, so Israel has one voting area. This is very important. Most of you come from places where there are districts and areas, and then you compete your voting within that area, and then there's a representative. We don't have that. Israel is small. It's one big area. What that means is that this encourages a multiple-party system, right? In the UK, for example, the system is called first-past-the-post. The entire country is divided into areas, and you have different competitions within each area, and the person who wins the majority in each area carries the, the, the like, you know, London or whatever. And in Israel, we have one bigger, so there's no incentive for anyone to try to even try to get over 50%, because everyone gets in, in a sense. Okay, so one big voting area. We also do not vote for people. We vote for parties. We tried voting for people once, and that's how we got Ehud Barak, uh, and we decided never to do that again. Uh, so we vote for parties. What does that mean? You go to the, you, when you go to vote in Israel, you put a silly little note, they're printed out, they have letters on them, and the red letters represent a party. They represent people. But each party has a list of people, okay? And the amount of votes they the amount, and the amount of votes they get is, according to that, the number of people on the party you get it. The people you know, the names, of the Israeli politicians you know are probably number one on their respective list. That's why you know the names. Netanyahu, Gabay, Gantz, Lapid. All these people are the number one people on their party. And in that sense, they're the leader of the party. In a very, very general sense. So Knesset is divided by the percentage of each party gets. How many seats in the Knesset? A rhetorical question. How many seats in the Knesset? Okay, exactly, 120, which is really fun because nothing is easier than dividing by 12, of course. So they could have made it 100 and made people's like, lives easier. Uh, this, you see this little star here? So this is now a lie, what I'm going to tell you. In Israel, the largest party formed the governing coalition. False. In Israel, generally, the largest party formed the largest coalition. Now, how Netanyahu did not win the election and came back to power. 2009. Tzipi Livni uh, ran for uh, the premiership under a party that does not exist anymore called Kadima. I will save you the history, it's not that interesting. It's an offshoot of the Likud that came together with an offshoot of the Labour Party to get Israel out of Gaza. That was the last time Israel uprooted settlements in a significant manner, which was 2005. Uh, and Ariel Sharon, Ariel Sharon, the former prime minister and general, and generally a crazy person, uh, founded this party, he went comatose, and there was an election, and Tzipi Livni was leading the party, and she won 30 seats in the Knesset. And Netanyahu's Likud won 29 seats in the Knesset. So Tzipi Livni gets first dibs. She's the one who gets to decide how to form the coalition. How do you form the coalition? You come to all the other parties, and you make deals until you form, until you reach 61, which is the majority within 120 seats. In the UK, I love this, they call this a hung parliament. <laughs> in Israel, we call this a weekday. Uh, so in Israel, there are, have only been coalitions historically. I don't think there has ever been 
a ruling government that was comprised of one single party. I think that was also true in 48. But I genuinely do not think there has ever been a one party or even two party government. Uh, it's always a deep, deeply complex combination. So, Tsipi uh, Levy tried forming the government. She tried, she tried, she tried, she tried, and she failed. But they really didn't want to let Netanyahu do it, so they let her try some more. But a right-wing party named Shas, which is run by religious, like uh, Mizrahi, religious Mizrahi, like um, Sephardic Jews, uh, refused to sit in a coalition with her, and she failed to form the government within the 100 days that are allocated to you to do so if you're the head of the largest party. So the task of forming the government fell to one, Benjamin Netanyahu. And since that day, he's been our prime minister. So generally, largest party forms a coalition, generally. Government is usually comprised of multiple parties. Okay, we said that. Bad news, less stability. We have tons of parties in our government. Small parties become have big powers. They are the kingmakers. If you're Netanyahu and your current coalition sits at 58 people, and there's a three-person party called, I don't know, whatever, the people for the, the human rights for peanuts, yes, you will do everything in your power to help the pro-peanut party join your government. You'll turn peanuts into Israel's national fruit, for all you care, because you need those three votes. Those three votes are now the difference between you in power and you not. So Israel's system is not only multi-party, but it also uh, objectively empowers smaller parties. Smaller parties have much, much, much bigger power in Israel than <coughs> big parties, which are almost a given of what they'll do in the election. Uh, so that's, uh, that's the bad news. The good news, political blocks, not parties, matter. In other words, it doesn't actually matter how many votes Netanyahu gets. I cannot stress how important that is. It does not matter how many votes Benny Gantz gets. Only matters what happens at the level of the political blocks. Is the right losing votes to the center? Is the center taking votes from the left? And is the left about to disappear? These are the questions that matter. It's just very hard to see them because there's tons and tons of little political parties and it's hard to understand. And also, the division between left and right is not always that clear. Uh, also good news, you don't have to win to win. So for example, like Netanyahu, if someone today manages to convince this person right here, does anyone know who this is? You mumbled, but I assume you all said it will be Rivlin. Ubi Rivlin is a former party member of Netanyahu who has become Israel's most popular politician. He's our president. Uh, it's a completely symbolic role in Israel. He has one task, which is deciding who forms the government. He gets to decide by who gets the best, who has the best chances. So if, for example, someone can convince him that they stand a better chance of forming the government than, say, Netanyahu, Netanyahu can then stop being prime minister. Ruby Levin is just a generally interesting person. Uh, he's from not only from the Likud, but from the right wing of the Likud. So this is a person who is to the right of Netanyahu, but not by a little, by a lot. So Netanyahu had some kind of very general level support for two-state solution. Ruby Levin was gone. Rubizubin is what we call a one-stater. But it doesn't matter in Israel today, you know what I mean? Like the politics, his personal politics have no effect on my life, not because he's the president, because that's not what's actually up for debate in Israeli politics today. The, what's up for debate and what's important is the, the, the limiting the power or, or asking about the, the powers of Netanyahu. And in that sense, he's a, a truly heroic figure because he's actually fighting for you know the state to function in a kind of not nepotistic way He's been very anti-Netanyahu to the extent where some people say he's breaking the laws of the presidency. But he's a sweet person and we like him generally. He's very sweet. He's a sweet man. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, no, he is. He is. He's, he like he seems kind-hearted. I don't know. Like I believe him. I don't know if he's actually sweet. Maybe he's crazy. Uh, okay. So this is how our election looks. I, I work for Onyx, but damn, Vox do it well. Um, so this is the outcome of the last election. This is the list of all the different parties, color-coded as if from left to right. This is the center. The left one, right? Nope. This is Netanyahu's government. That's the point. The blocks matter. The relative size of the blocks, not the specific parties, not the, the division within them. Um, so without delving too much into it, we're going to go for the parties. Just have this visual with you. We're, people are now fighting over this. Or this. This is what we're fighting over. So there's different types of people who can shift from side to side. So just as a kind of general example, because I know you're interested in this, so this is what we call the joint Arab list. This is the one party that unites all three Arab parties in Israel. Israel has had historically three Arab parties, or three different kind of types of Arab politics, uh, and because for a whole bunch of reasons, but ironically, uh, through a right-wing attempt to silence them, uh, all the Arab parties were forced to run together. The reason they were forced to run together is because we've raised the election threshold. What does that mean? So I described 120 seats, right? You can't get just one seat, okay? Like if I run for Knesset and I get like one seat, my voice, my, my, my one seat goes to the garbage because you need a minimum of four seats to be in the Knesset. And they did it, it doesn't really matter why they did this, but what actually happened as a result of raising the threshold was that the Arab party had to unify. And when they unified, they got, they ended up getting 13 votes, never mind. But they, they had 13 Knesset seats. A lot. They were, you can actually see the Arabs are the third biggest party in the U.S. Knesset, right? Look, United List, that's the Arabs. Zionist Union, that's the Labour Party Center. And Likud, 30, so 30, 24, 14. No one got higher than that. Yet no one would argue in this room that the Arab party in Israel is the third strongest party in Israel. And the reason is, indeed, they're outside of the block and therefore their power is irrelevant. So the question becomes, how do you tip the block? Okay, this is my very poor attempt to do infographics. <laughs> this is the updated map of Israeli politics. Oh, this broke. This line wasn't supposed to break. Okay, left, center, right, hard right, religious right, far right, <laughs> unclear. Oh shit, no, we only, only, only. I didn't work with the wireframe. I guess it's under the. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I'll verbally say it. No, it's not working. Oh, no. Uh, no. no, you're ruining really it. Don't try. Okay. No, I'll, I'll just stop. Just go back to full screen and don't touch it. <laughs> Sorry, let me do it. So, let's quickly go over this list. This might seem tedious. This is the time for specific questions. Like, if any one party seems intriguing to you, ask me now. I'll delve into it for shortly and we'll move on. So, let's start at the left. Arabs. In Israel, all Arabs are left-wing, okay? I don't know why this is. It's because we are at war with them, so they're only allowed one position, which is being on the left. I'll tell you a secret. Not all Arabs are left-wing. Despite Israel's institutional racism, turns out that Arab society is actually very complex and diverse, and there's a whole manner of political opinions. For example, there is Hadash, the Communist Party, which is very left-wing. Indeed, they are left-wing. And there's Jews and Arabs running there together. There is Ram Tal, which 
we'll assume is one party for now, and that is an Islamist party. So it's not Islamist in the sense of ISIS, but it's in the sense of what we call political Islam, which is, despite Netanyahu's opinions, something that is happening in the Arab world and something that has resonance in the Middle East. The third party is Balad. Balad is a nationalistic policy party. In other words, they are right-wing, but they are right-wing Palestinians. Yeah? Within the Palestinian discourse, they are right-wing, they are nationalistic, the same way Netanyahu supporters are. They're nationalists. They believe in Palestine first. Right? Make Palestine great again. They're nationalists. The fact that they've lost, the fact they're on the losing side of history, forces them to clump up with people who are on the left. But with, in, a, in a proper political world, we would understand that they're right-wing, and maybe they could even live together. So people who follow uh, bizarre politics like Lebanon, which is probably the craziest political system in the world, uh, will know will notice that they have solutions for these kind of things. Right? Within Lebanese politics, you have people who are nationalistic of different types who hate each other, but can also join forces of being nationalists. Uh, so that is the Arabs. Merits. Merits is probably what most of you, I don't know, I don't want to say this, but what most urban liberals vote. Merits is very kind of left-wing. It's in Germany. It's like the links of Germany. So it's, it's the left-wing party. I wish I had something interesting to say about it. They're not that interesting. They had their primaries last week, and they managed to vote two Arabs into their list, which is actually impressive, uh, because it's considered a very kind of white party that's not really open to newcomers. So in that sense, there was an Arab and a Druze there, which is cool. Um, I don't think it's going to help them that much, but you should know that they exist. They're very pro-gay, pro-LGBT, very feminist, very labor rights oriented. Uh, they used to be much more vocally anti-occupation. They've kind of shifted more to social issues. I think it's more a political choice than an ideological thing. It's Israel's main pro-peace, pro-blah-blah-blah party. Okay, from here it stopped being fun. Uh, the Zionist uh, Labour. Labour is the party that, is, that founded Israel, uh, like the Labour in the UK. You cannot believe how bad it sucks today. Uh, so Labour is falling and failing as if Jeremy Corbyn was its leader. Uh, but instead of Jeremy Corbyn, we, invented some, we actually elected someone even sillier, even less impressive, which is the former CEO of Bezik. Yes, the very same Bezik, which Bibi is now entitled Entangled in a Corruption Probe. Uh, for some reason, the Israeli Zionist left thinks that a former CEO will save them. So this is uh, Labour. Uh, you might recall them from such hits as the Zionist Union, which was their name the last election, when they ran together with a party called Hatnuah, which is Tipi Levy's party, which shot off from Kadima. Yeah, you've lost me. It's not that interesting. But this was a center-left party. You can see the left of center. You say did this. So Hatnuah uh, stopped being relevant three days ago. Tipi Livni, its leader, committed political suicide and said, I'm not running because if I run, votes on the left will go to the trash because people will vote for me, but not enough for me to get four Knesset seats, therefore putting all my votes in the trash, therefore handing Tipi the election. So she did something very brave, very honest, and very, something genuinely brave, and something that is rare in Israeli politics, and took one for the team and stepped down. Uh, so rest in peace, Hatnuah. Yes, indeed. People down there hang honey flyers, yes, they all look like this. Uh, <laughs> it's a party of people with good shoulders and great hair. Uh, they don't believe much of anything, but they're all very attractive people. Uh, there's a 
gay guy there if you're into that. There's a, like whatever. There's like an identity politics person if you're into that. There's a former general if you're into that. There's whatever you need. They have it. Uh, one good thing I will say about Yishatif, the fact that they are here downstairs fighting for your vote is super impressive because generally none of you can vote. Uh, no, I think that shows how American their style of politics is. Like they're doing what Americans call campaigning. So they're campaigning the bejesus out of everything, and it's impressive. Uh, despite being a part, despite being an empty shell of a party, they've actually managed to stick around for quite some time now. That's cool for them. That's nice. Uh, Israel resilience or Israeli resilience. Chosen Israel, the newest party in Israel. Uh, run by the very handsome Benny Gantz. Um, it's just, it's, it's, you see I placed it right of center, um, because it's a combination of generals and kind of generic Israeli kind of people. They've now, they've literally, as I'm speaking, I can even look at my phone to make sure that this is actually happening. Uh, yeah, but as I'm speaking, they've actually now released their like official list and they managed to get some women in there, so it's not a complete like sausage fest, but still. <laughs> uh, so it's a nice combination of men and women. Uh, Kulanu. Kulanu is last year's Israel's resilience, and this year's Yeshatid. Uh, last two years ago's Yeshatid. Kulanu spun off from the Likud. It's like we're right wing, but we're we're aware of social issues. It's run by Finance Minister Moshe Kaplan, who's a generally nice person and not that good of a politician. Uh, very decent finance minister, by the way. Um, so, Kulano, they're like social right. Okay. Uh, Likud, Netanyahu's Likud, proper right. This is like, you know, the Likud historically has been a very liberal party. Like, Israel was founded by communists and socialists, and their claim to fame, the Likud historically would be liberals. Liberals in that kind of very liberal sense. Like open market, da da da, and so on and so forth. Um, that legacy is dead, uh, but it used to be that way. Um, but I still put them to the under the right. Uh, Israel Beitenu. Israel Beitenu is run by Avigdor Lieberman, uh, maybe the most interesting Israeli politician today. Um, Russian, uh, very, very right-wing, very nationalistic, very, very smart, fiercely smart, uh, who makes very strange political decisions that all tend to pay off in a really kind of bizarre way in retrospect. So he's right of right, and now we're jumping a line to the hard right. Okay, hard right. There's a new party in Israel called the New Right, Hayamin HaChadash. They're an offshoot of this party, the Jewish home. So the Jewish home was historically Israel has, someone asked this question, I love this question. What is the difference between ultra-Orthodox and what we call national religious? The difference is, you can almost think of it as the difference between political Islam and ISIS. Okay, so if ISIS wants to set up a caliphate, then political Islam wants to bring Islam within a political framework. The same way. So, what do I mean by that? The ultra-Orthodox are, in a sense, ISIS. I don't mean that in the derogatory sense that they want to execute people. I mean that they want a religious state. They're anti-Zionist, because Israel is a secular state. And they're not into that. They want a Jewish state. So, they want a religious state. On the other hand, the, what we call national religious, people with small kippos and some beard, but not like the full thing, Khaledi thing, and those people are political Islam. They want, they want, they, they want Jewish politics, but they want it within a national framework. So that is kind of the spectrum that runs between these two. I'll add another aspect to that, which is supporting the settlements. So a lot of these parties support uh, Israel's settlements in the West Bank for religious reasons. 
So uh, that is one aspect of it. While generally Haredim, like ultra-Orthodox people, do not care about the West Bank as much as they don't care about Tel Aviv. It makes no difference to them. Literally no difference to them. Um, so that's just about that. So the new right came out of the Jewish home. This is very kind of religious-y, and this is trying to be more secular. Why is this interesting? Because they're now fighting with Israel Beitein, in a sense. So there's a fight now about the secular right. Okay? The religious right has always been a very kind of crowded field, and now they're fighting for a new constituency, which is the secular right. Uh, the Jewish home is very pro-settler, Shas, uh, ultra-Orthodox, but still right-wing. I put them under religious right, even though they're ultra-Orthodox, because they are also right-wing in the kind of pro-settler sense, in a sense. Uh, Yachad is Israel's far-out right-wing party, put to shame only by the Smart Yisrael. These people are like, it's beyond lunacy at this point. It's like, <laughs> this is like what you would call Israeli alt-right, in a sense. But, whatever. Um, okay, there's two parties you can't see here. So one is actually a really important one, which is the United Torah Judaism. This is the ultra-Orthodox party. The ultra-Orthodox party is a very strong party. It has six votes. You can see them here. Why is that important? Because Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, white ultra-Orthodox, not Sharadim, but like Ashkenazi, ultra-Orthodox, vote only for this party. They don't vote for any other party, they never will. They don't have any political conception of anything other beyond what we call Abuda. They only vote Abuda Israel. They only vote Abuda. Unless they're another type of Haredi, and then they vote the other party within Abuda. It doesn't matter. They only vote Abuda. Ten years ago, they had five seats. Now they have six. You know why? They multiply. What? Exactly. They multiply. And when you multiply and people don't, like, you know, I don't vote the same way my father does, so my father is angry. But if I was Haredi, I would not have this problem. My son would vote exactly like me because we only vote for Abuda. Because we only voted Abuda. My grandfather set up Abuda, and Abuda has always been Abuda for us, and that's it. So that's, in that sense, they're a very interesting party because their number is static. It's almost one of the few parties in Israel that you can almost always know how many votes you're going to get because it's just a direct result of the number of people who identify as ultra-Orthodox in Israel. And they're very important because they're, in a sense, neither left-wing nor right-wing. All they care about is Haredi politics. All they care about is the stuff that is completely irrelevant to you and has to do with Shabbat, kosher, weird stuff like construction, the Kotel, Stuff that is generally of no interest to general Israelis, but very, very important to them. Their long-term political struggle has been the Shabbat, so that's the only big thing that you should actually care about. Um, they want no public transportation in Israel on Saturday. That's annoying for the rest of us. That's a political battle. Uh, if any of you have been recently near the Ayalon, have you noticed that they're building a bridge over it? Yes. Okay, so we're now getting this cool, like London has that like Tate Bridge, and we're now getting something like that as well. That you can now, we'll now be able to cross that alone on foot. There was a huge debate, when will we build this, this bridge? The only time you can close that alone is on Saturday, but it's a problem for Netanyahu's government because they sit with the, with the ultra-Orthodox. And now, Israel is the only country in the world that election season means that we can actually build the stuff that is unpopular. So they're, not build, they're building the bridge now not to please voters, they're building it because the government can't collapse. So the Haredis have lost their power. There's like a three-month window where the Haredis can't blackmail Bibi, so they just build a bridge on Saturday now. <laughs> Amazing. In most countries, corrupt elections mean that like we get now free gifts. You know what I mean? Like the one of like, oh, we'll give free parking in Tel Aviv, so everyone votes for me. No, no, it's not to do with that. That's for the Haredim. Uh, so the Haredim are up for grabs. Anyone who gives them what they want, they will sit with government event. If Benny Gantz gets 59 overall, his block 
gets 59 messages. And he comes up to Agudat Yisrael, the United Torah Judaism, and tells them, listen, I promise no bridge will be built any Saturday, and you will be able to have as many Chalifim as you want, not go to the army ever. They will be in his camp forever. The other party you can't see here is a party called Geshel, which I didn't actually read what's on my phone, so it might, this might be false at this point already. Uh, Geshel is the party of a very interesting and very intelligent woman named Oli Levi Abukasis, who is a former model um, and a kind of a scion of Israeli politics. So her father was a very, very famous Israeli politician. Uh, and she's been in politics for quite a while now, and she's kind of spun off into her own party, which I'm not really sure if it's right-wing or not. In theory, it's right-wing, because it, a lot of the people there are right-wing. But if I had to actually classify it, I would say it's one of Israel's sole identity uh, politics parties. Because she's actually running as a Mizrahi feminist. So this party is becoming more and more into like women of color running on this agenda, which is very interesting. Within Israeli politics, it stands zero chance of having any resonance, but it's interesting. Um, and she is a very strong card within Israeli politics. So if, for example, she decides to join uh, Israel Resilience and, or run with Gantz, that could tip the election in his favor. Okay. But she's, I call her a wild card because her agenda is helping that specific constituency. She doesn't, she's not beholden to the left or the right. Okay, now let's delve into it. Khatikh! What is Khatikh in Hebrew? Han, Han, he's a Han. This is Benny Gantz. I know nothing about him. He's hot. I don't know. That's it. That's all we can say about him. Uh, he's a general, as his general ranks attest to. Uh, he's the picture of what happens in a country where you have a king, and you cannot imagine political alternatives to him. He is now running at the head of a new party that has, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, they have no agenda. They, they, they genuinely have no agenda. And it's not the way we used to say about people. It's not, the, for example, just as an example, so it's not the same way Yair Lapid does not have an agenda, this Yeshatid character. If there's French people here, it's not the same way that Macron does not have an agenda, or the same way Trudeau does not have an agenda. It's not this kind of generic centrism, very boring centrism that we see kind of wash over the world. This is something different. This is a party who is actually being pitched as everyone who is responsible, but it's not Netanyahu. <laughs> that this is literally their slogan, and a very another interesting thing is that they're running as the IDF. So uh, for the Turks here in the audience, uh, I now get how you support military coups. I now get how this happens. Uh, so the entire Israeli left is now in love with the general, who has a party full of generals, uh, whose sole argument is we need to stop Netanyahu. It's a very strong argument. It's hard to argue with them. Uh, he's spoken publicly twice, uh, the second time being as I speak now, he's presenting his list of the Knesset. Uh, he's putting together a pretty impressive roster of former generals and people in the public sphere. Uh, but again, the question is not how much votes he gets. But it is, in a sense, because he needs to bring a lot of votes. But the question is, can we tip the relationship between the blocks? So now let's delve a bit into the blocks. Okay, Yehilapin and the old center. So if Gantz was the new generation, this is the old generation, Yehilapin, he actually dresses this way to this day. It's quite amazing. Um, <laughs> and he's, he hasn't lost his hair, which is just so unfair towards me, but okay. Uh, so Yehilapin, he, because they're downstairs, they're actually surviving. And because they campaign as if we're in America, they managed to keep their power at a kind of six, seven seats. seats. It's impressive, considering they have no agenda. Uh, Moshe Kaplan. Uh, so that's the old center. He's kind of center right. That's why I put him to the right side. Uh, and uh, 
and uh, he's falling in the polls now. So he's there's a very good chance that he won't make it in the next government, and that's important because he is considered uh, kingmaker. He's Netanyahu's kingmaker ally. So when Kulanu joined the government, it helped bring the Likud over the 61 uh, line that they needed to win to, to form the government. And he's now falling hard, 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 hard. He's like they were at 10, and now he's at like four or five. Which four or five is is close to the four, which is like if you're cutting for. So if he doesn't make it, that's very bad news for Netanyahu. So what he's contemplating on doing is either joining Netanyahu or maybe joining someone else. He'll probably rejoin Netanyahu or go for a sole run and fall. The other people probably being around seven, eight, something like that. And he's campaigning very hard. Um, okay, so the right, the right is the most interesting thing happening in Israel today. Uh, because the left has lost, it doesn't really matter what happens within my camp, because it's not interesting. We're just fighting over the same chair. So it doesn't really matter if I sit here or someone else sits here. It's, just, it's obviously our chair. So the right is actually, the, what's happening within the right is actually really interesting. So this is Naftali Bennett. Uh, you can't see it that he's wearing a kippah. Uh, that's on purpose. His kippah keeps getting smaller. Uh, it's literally the size of a G-string at this point. It's like a thread on the top of his head. Um, because the fight is now for a secular right. And he's trying to pivot away from the more religious right. And he used to be the head of the religious right, of the Habay Deyudi. But he's spun off and formed a new party called the New Right with this woman who um, is Israel's justice minister and my candidate is most likely to succeed Netanyahu in the long term. So if you remember anything, look into Ayala Chakid. She is, as, bad guy, as, as Batman put it, the bad guy we deserve. Uh, Netanyahu is just depressing. She's actually, she's actually frightening uh, because she's super smart and super efficient and uh, uh, she's actually come to bring about the right-wing revolution to Israel. Her agenda is secular. Her right-wing manifest as a contempt for liberal judges. That's her big thing. She doesn't like liberal judges. You've probably heard this in America as well, you know, all these left-wing judges. Interpreting the law, it's very exhausting. Um, so she's now in the midst of appointing a whole bunch of new judges uh, who believe, among other things, that there's no problem for Israel to extend the law within Israel, for example, to the West Bank, which people like me call that annexation or apartheid, but they call it rule of law. So she's actually, she's actually The person terrorizing them from the left, and I choose the word terrorizingly on purpose, is this pretty boy, Bitsalis uh, Smotrich. Uh, if you really want to hate someone, look up of the title because you'll have a blast hating him. Uh, he's openly homophobic. He's openly pro-Jewish terror. He was even arrested once for keeping uh, canisters full of gasoline in his house ahead of the day the, day the IDF was supposed to come and uproot him from his illegal settlement. Uh, so he's now the generally he's the head of the uh, the the the, 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 UD, the religious right. Uh, and he's pulling votes or fighting with Bennett and Shaked for the religious vote. On the other hand, you have this person. This is Lieberman. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. Inspires confidence. <laughs> Sleep well. Uh, I actually love him. He's, 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 like, he's probably the most corrupt person to ever walk Israel, but he's, he's fiercely intelligent and there's just something adorable about him. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so Lieberman, he's fighting on the other side in the sense that he's trying to fight for the Russian vote. He's Russian, and he, for many years, represented the Russian party. But this whole idea in Israel of there, there being a Russian vote has been this almost kind of like mystery. It's 
the Russian vote, you've got to get the Russian vote. There's like a million Russians that came here in 91. Like it's huge, it's huge, it's huge. But no one actually has ever managed to do something with this beyond legal one. He had this party of like former USSR people, but that kind of has lost its cloud over the years. And now what we're seeing is something very interesting, where there actually be a new generation of in, in, in Hebrew has a tendency to kind of be a bit racial, but we call them Usim, meaning Russians. They're not Russians, they're Israelis who were born to Russian families who immigrated to here in the 90s. So there is a new generation of, of, of people of lineage from the former USSR, or people whose parents are from the former USSR, who are very right-wing, but very secular. And we didn't have that in Israel for a long time now, because that used to be really cool. Right-wing and secular, that was really, really cool. It's, it's kind of changed over time, and now there's a real battle over this new generation of secular right-wing voters. Why does it matter that they're secular, right? It's, it matters because historically, we, as I've explained to you, religious parties are kingmakers, right? The Haredi party, they want Shabbat. These Russian, or these new secular right-wing generation, that's exactly what they're concerned about. They want a very, very right-wing government, but they want it to be very secular. They don't want the Shabbat stuff. They don't want to fund those orthodox studies. They want to be right-wing in a very kind of, almost uh, like in, in, this, in the way that fascism was very liberal also, like liberally economic. So they're very geared towards economy, they're very geared towards distinction between church and state, uh, which is a political problem in Israel if you're banking on the Haredi. Okay, merits and labor. Uh, okay, so this is, look, I did a nice animation to represent how we threw her out. Oh, you saw that? <laughs> so this used to be, oh, so this is Avi Gabay, uh, he's the head of labor. Um, labor is a great list, like, uh, in a sense, I would almost maybe vote for them um, if I didn't despise him so much. It's a great list, the party looks really good, they're not going to do that well, but it doesn't really matter because they're splitting up the vote with uh, Meretz, which is the left. As I said, this is Tami Zander, she studied uh, two years above me at uni. Uh, she's very cool, she's from Tel Aviv, she smokes pot. Uh, so this is the left. I did this line here to illustrate the fact that despite attempts to get them to run together, they're not running together, and Israel will not have a links party, uh, and will not have a left-wing party, uh, one left-wing party, which could have been a good idea because there is actually a lot in common between them. So though Tami is much more left-wing than Labour, the fact of the matter is these are both left-wing Zionist parties. And this is the distinction between Zionism and non-Zionism is, is, in a sense, very important. Because the Arabs are non-Zionist by definition, as are the Haredi, right? And in a sense, being Zionist left, is, is, it, 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 it can help grow people together. For example, people like my parents, who are very left-wing, but still feel very Zionistic and would not vote for the Arabs. They just can't bring themselves to do it. It's not a racial thing. They just can't. So a unified party like this, they would vote for. I lied, by the way, my dad votes for the Arab party, but my mom doesn't. <laughs> uh, brings us to the Arabs, the Arabs, uh, the joint list. So these are the two kind of prominent figures to emerge from the joint list. Uh, Ahmad Tibi is one the most famous Arab politician in Israel, was for many years. He's a gynecologist, he's given birth to a number of lawmakers, you heard me right, a number of serving lawmakers, including those in the very far right, Ahmed Tibi delivered them, which is just amazing. <laughs> um, so Tibi, you can kind of get his politics, uh, not exactly secular. Uh, he's fiercely intelligent. Uh, intelligent. He's, uh, he's famous in the Israeli Knesset. Does anyone know for what? He corrects the Israeli politicians Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> this is completely true. They say, uh, <laughs> So he's 
So his Hebrew is amazing, and he's very smart, but he's also very polemic. Uh, and Ayman Ode. Ayman Ode is the good guy who deserves well. Uh, Ayman, uh, Netanyahu famously said two elections ago to win, or last election, that the Arabs were going to the polls in droves. Did you hear this? Yeah. Yeah. Now the day of the election, sent out like fake news SMSs. Uh, the left wing is busing all the Arabs to the to the to the ballots to vote. They're voting in droves. Do you know what Ayman Ode's slogan is for this election? We vote in droves. Yeah. <laughs> in that sense, he does have, and I, and I, and I mean this in a kind of, uh, this is a bit overstating, but he does have that, that Martin Luther King thing in the sense where he, he, he's, 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 he's fanatically pro-democracy. So a lot of the Arabs have pivoted to boycotting the election. In a sense, the biggest wild card in Israeli election is the fact that about 50% of 20% of its population, right? Arabs make up 20% of Israeli population. About 50% of them don't vote. If they were to vote, Israel's map would look completely, completely different. But they don't vote. They don't vote because it's their occupation. They never vote for Israel. They can't normalize, normalize, normalize. Blah, blah. So TB kind of banks on that in a sense. But Oda is the opposite. Vote in droves. He's even said that he's willing to join the government, which is something that no Arab has ever done because it's super proper, super, 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 super legitimate to do that. And he's voiced willingness to sit in a center-left government. In other words, join the government to stop Netanyahu, which is huge. Because to have Palestinians within a Zionist government is no trivial task. And his willingness to say that means that he's actually a transformative figure. The problem is that it, it's not necessarily going to pay off for him. Um, why am I dwelling on both these people? Ahmed Tibi, I, I, he came to, to Alex two weeks ago, we had a meeting with him, and he makes the following argument. I'm going to split off from Ayman Ode. We're not going to run as one party, because if we run together, our percentage grows. So together, with, as one party, the Arabs together bring 13 votes, 13 messages. Tibi claims that if he runs alone, he brings six, and Ode brings, oh no, they both bring seven. Or they, no, he brings six and other brings seven. They climb to 13 or something like that. So he claims that there's one extra. That if they run one, that a unified Arab party would get 12 votes, and uh, two Arab parties together would get 13, therefore growing their relative size within the Knesset. It's a strong argument if he's right. If he's wrong, half of the Arab votes go down the drain. So that's kind of up for debate. Uh, Oli Levy, political wildcard. Uh, Oli Levy, this is who she is. Uh, she does indeed look like a model. Um, she's very intelligent. She does very interesting politics. It's unclear if it's going to work. Okay, what are the chances Bibi won't beat BPM? Chances, slip to none. Reason, it's a fucking moonshot. But here's how it can happen nonetheless. I told you that there's a threshold, a 3.25% threshold. In other words, you have to get minimum four nested seats to come into the Theoretical question, what happens if you make, you actually get to three, but you don't make it to four? What happens to those three? You could say, maybe they join another party. Maybe they join one of the other blocks. They do not. They go down the drain. I, my party fails to make it to the threshold. Only a very small percentage of my votes goes to another party. Most of them go down the drain, de facto changing the relationship between the overall percentage, right? Because if you were supposed to get four seats, they got three, then that changes the relative number of votes of, of votes up for grabs. This is a bit weird and complex, but it's important because I want to explain to you now how BB is going to lose the election. 
if the Arabs bring one extra sin, if TB is not a lot, which is far from being clear if that's true, if TB is right, and the Arabs bring one more extra seat, and one or two right-wing parties do not make it through the threshold, Benny Gantz is Israel's next Prime Minister. Okay? For that to happen, and I repeat, one or two right-wing parties need to fail to make it into the Knesset. In other words, I'm saying something that is also very anti-democratic, and I really want to stress that. I'm suggesting that the only way that now loses is, is if people's votes, legitimate, democratically voted votes, go down the drain because of a technical loophole. So this is the only scenario in which Netanyahu loses. is a scenario in which the right wing, part of the right wing, gets fractured and does not make it through the election. Why is that even something that I would talk about? Because there's a chance it will happen. Because right now, if you, if you read Netanyahu's uh, newspaper, if you read Israel Yom, it's, really, it's, like, uh, it's like reading the, 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 the subconscious of um, the political subconscious of the regime. Um, and if you read what's happening there, every day now, there's headlines saying, the left is going to win because the right fell apart, because the right is divided. And Netanyahu is now even contemplating bringing this cracker, this crazy person here, and his ilk into the Likud, or maybe trying, and he's trying to pressure them to bring that, like the far-right Kahanis into government or into their party, because he's afraid that the far-right vote will get lost. That these two fringe parties that I showed you here, that these two fringe parties will get like two, two, and then those four will go down the trash. That's exactly the four that Netanyahu needs to make government. This is our polls today. You can't read Hebrew, and we all suck at math, so I did the math for you. <laughs> Center left, 58, right, 59. The race is to 61. The race is to 61. Two, three votes are all of the difference. If any one of these clowns doesn't make it in, Okay. No, no, in that sense, I, I, that's, yeah, it's a shame I can't show you older polls, but this poll, people who follow the early polls, this poll is insane. Because this long tail used to not exist. This long tail used to end here. If you didn't have parties that were smaller than four, five, all of these parties now don't pass the threshold. So that's like fine, they committed suicide, fine. Gesho, this is only Levy, doesn't make it. Abayta Yudi, the far right party, one of them doesn't make it. Zehut, another, no, no, I didn't tell you about Zehut, it doesn't matter. Israel Beitenu, Lieberman, don't make it in today. Four is on the threshold. If you're getting four points in a poll that has a 3% <coughs> margin of error, you're in bad shape. <laughs> okay? Merit's all scratching it. Five and a half with a 3% margin of error, they're barely making it in. Shas, barely making it in. Okay, so now from here you can see these are the Arabs. On the Shutef Etal, so these are the two Arab parties, 6.565, 13, as they promised us. This is the United Torah, this is the Haredim, the New Right, Labor, Yeshatid, Benny Gantz, Bibi. Um, so this is the only way that they can win. So we actually are fighting for three votes. Uh, the possible kingmakers are United Torah, Judaism, Shas, Kulanu, and Lieberman. Lieberman will also sit with, not Bibi, because he's smart. Um, so this is where we stand now. And that was the end of my lecture, and we will now pivot to questions. Uh, yes, I see you there. Go. Um, that's like through the vision against Bennett. Do you think that um, Benny Gantz and Gesha Heat might uh, fusion before this election or they both 
rather wait till the moment when the oh. next election comes. Uh, the next, as Clint Eastwood said, tomorrow is a promise for no one. The election, the next election is. I wouldn't wait for that one. Um, I think the, the, the fact. Yes, he asked me if the two center parties merge, will that matter? That's kind of what you asked. Right? Do I think it will change? So in theory, there's talks about Yeshatid and uh, Quran emerging. According to all pollsters, this will actually make no difference. Again, we're talking about blocks. The question is if they run together or if they run separately. It's only question if they bring more block, more votes. Currently, they together, if they run as one party, they bring 35 pension seats. If they run independently, they bring 35 pension seats. It doesn't matter. So there's no incentive for any of them to run, to run as one party because it doesn't grow, doesn't give them more numbers. Sorry, what? Like no synergy effect like the Zionist Union had four years ago? Uh, Zionist Union had great synergy effects, so this is what he's asking about the previous Labour Party that ran together with, uh, with uh, Hatnua. Uh, yes, it did, but it didn't work out, so I'm not sure that it actually mattered. They, they brought a lot of votes, uh, but again, the, 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 they didn't manage to tilt the blocks, so maybe they'll have some synergy. That could be nice, but I'm not sure because that's how you win the election. The only way we can win this election, the only way they, can, the, the, they will win this election, is if they make sure that a lot of right-wingers vote for fringe parties. As sad and as frustrating as this is done here, it doesn't matter what the people you know vote, okay? Like, assuming you're all generally liberal, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that much. We've lost. The only thing that matters is what happens in the right, and if the right manages to break up their vote to the extent where they will shoot themselves in the right. This is where we're at. If Menace doesn't make it in, we're all, we've all, like, it's, 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 it's bad, but we're not, I'm not sure that we're there yet. Yes? More questions? I have a long list of previous questions if you like. In that sense, is it realistic for Gantz to bring on Levy in this coalition? Because it would be more interesting for him. Yes. If, 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 if Gantz were to bring Oli Levy Abuksis, the former model turned star politician, that would be interesting because she's a transformative character. That's the whole point. She brings votes from the right, so that's interesting. She grows his numbers. Yelope doesn't grow his numbers. Like if you're a liberal who believes in the free market and you own a Jeep, then you're going to vote for Yeshatid or anyway. So if you don't vote for Yeshatid, you vote for Gantz. But it doesn't matter. It's not that one of them is going to you know, secretly help Netanyahu. They'll both help him quite clearly the moment they realize they won't be prime ministers, which is kind of their defining qualities. But it, beyond that, it doesn't matter. Like It's just a question of where your vote goes within the block. It's nice. It feels like an exercise in democracy. That's what I said. It's an exercise in democracy. We all get to pretend to play in representation this time around. But it's not that actually that important, as sad as that actually is. Uh, yes? Uh, so pretty much everyone from here, including the Likud, all the way this way, even including Israel Beitenu. But if you've been to my other lectures, you will know that no one cares about the two-state solution beyond people who live in Europe. Um, in Israel, this is a non-issue. Uh, thanks to people like Shimon Peres, people in Brussels still think this is something that we actually debate here. That's nice, but we don't. Um, that's not actually something this election is even remotely related to. I wish I could lie to you and say otherwise, but it's not. And this election is about do you support the king or do you not support the king? The question of the, if the king is pushing for one or two states is completely irrelevant. You say, yeah, let me ask you, let us switch the question. Does it now support the one state or the two state solution? Does that matter? Are we closer to peace now than we were 10 years ago? 
And maybe the question of two theaters is not actually the important question. Maybe the important question is to support, you know, progress or stagnation. But they now obviously support stagnation. So, Yawan. Um, yeah, I, I know it's funny I'm asking you a question here, and not on the balcony. Um, but what are the chances that the Likud will form a coalition with, uh, let's say, Israel resilience, like with Benny Gantz? I mean, wh wh why isn't Bibi just going with what you call the center? Because he's not that right wing as you introduced at the beginning. Yeah, that's a really smart question. I don't actually know the answer to that. There is a small chance. I think that that's actually how the government will look. So I think that what actually will happen is that there will be a government involving uh, Benny Gantz uh, and Netanyahu. Uh, because there's something about this kind of like Israeli general culture, not general in the general sense, general as in the general, um, <laughs> uh, that he, he's very responsible. And I think that argument of like, uh, we need a responsible adult in the room and I'll just, I'll be, there's, no, there's nothing to do, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be with Neal's defense minister, I'll carry this burden. No, no, that's, what, that's what will happen. I think that since Israel is actually heading towards much stability, um, because I think this election proves that Netanyahu has actually won at a very fundamental level. Okay? These are the least political elections ever in Israeli history. So the differences between these parties are just pretty much personal. It's not, there's no political differences. In that sense, I don't think there's gonna be that much of a problem once, once Netanyahu wins by a little or loses by a little to form the government, which will actually be very stable in comparison to this one. I also think, and I've actually, like, sources close to whatever have told us that um, Netanyahu, in a sense, prefers Gantz in government. Netanyahu wants Gantz in government, he doesn't want to form a right-wing government uh, because he doesn't want to fight with Trump. Uh, he doesn't, and he can't like. If, and if there's a right-wing government, they'll have to tell them that no one actually cares about the two-state solution. While if you bring in Gantz, you can continue to maintain the charade for a few more years, which is what Netanyahu wants. And he wants to maintain the charade that Israel is geared towards some kind of conflict resolution, and therefore buy time. Uh, Netanyahu is buying time all the time. He's buying time, uh, and in that sense, he's very smart because all the things that he bought time for all paid off. Like, everyone told him, like all the left-wing movements like me were like, all the 90s and 2000s were like, you can't continue with this occupation, the world will never forgive you. Oh yeah? <laughs> Wait for Syria. <laughs> oh, turns out they will forgive you, okay, never mind. Uh, oh, you can't be illiberal, that's crazy, Europe will never forgive you. Oh, have you met my friend Victor Orban? <laughs> turns out you can't be illiberal. Uh, and that's something Netanyahu dead right. So he bet that the world is not heading towards more progress. He understood that Obama was an anomaly, not the rule. <laughs> that Obama was not the continuation of progress as we've understood from the Enlightenment till today, but an anomaly in a very violent century that will quickly pivot back to being a liberal. And he was right, and there's, you can't argue with him, he was right. Like, he nailed Trump. He got Trump before everyone. Like, he knew that was a good gamble. And that's not an easy thing after eight years of Obama. Like we were all sure that it was going to be like Woody Cookie and great and blah, blah. no, <laughs> turns out we were wrong. Um, and him betting on Eastern Europe, for example, like that's a crazy gamble. Like he bet on the Visegrad. Like that's not a, like he bet against Brussels. Like not that many people can say that. Like he bet against Brussels and won. Like he won. That's crazy. Like he lost this morning because they didn't show up. But generally, like Israel's ties with Eastern Europe and even with Putin are very impressive. Like if you look at how complex this region is, like Netanyahu is really like it's a top tier game. Like seriously. Yes. So I didn't understand exactly why you say that the next elections will be the the dominant one. Because the next elections will be a year. Uh, a year and a half. Yeah. Because because if the prime minister is convicted. 
of bribes and is sentenced to jail and does not go to jail, that will be the elections. The elections will then be about that, but not in some like figurative way. Because now it's like he wants to go into the yeah, exactly. Now he wants to like go into this like legal process with like you know after with the win on his hands, but that doesn't actually mean anything. Like, you still like you know, even popular people commit crimes. So there's, there's no connection between the two, but like if he's actually gunning for a, constitution, a constitutional crisis, then that could work. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. What's the party's take on environmental issues? Great question. Um, there's, it's, it's actually more and more become a slightly more of a thing. Oh, Dance, uh, sorry, the question was where do Israeli politicians stand on the environment? Uh, generally, Israel is a very like environment is not that big of an issue for us because we're a very very small country and we don't like a lot of our industry is not heavy industry. Uh, we're also big on fracking, you might have heard. Um, so like, Israel is actually a very, very oil, uh, ga natural gas-rich country. Uh, thanks in part also to Netanyahu um, and his uh, drive for privatization. So Israel is actually very energy-rich now, and that is like a big debate that we have about should we be exporting our gas or should we not. Uh, but the, the, there's no real prominent uh, environmental people. But, funny that you asked that. Uh, no, sorry, hold on, hold on. This guy, this guy, this guy. Uh, Avi Gabay, the reason the Israelis liked him was because he was the environmental minister for, like, in Netanyahu's government for a while, but then quit over some environmental stuff. So everyone was like, oh, here's someone who actually does his job. Because it's so rare for Israeli ministers to do the ministry that they're actually supposed to do. And Avi Gabay was like, actually about the environment. In that sense, he was an okay guy. Yep. Um, you said that Israeli politics isn't really about individuals, it's about the parties. Yeah. The way you described it is very individual heavy. Has that changed? Or? Wow, amazing question. Um, no, generally amazing question. Can you repeat the question? The question was, Omar claimed that Israeli politics is all about parties. Yet Omar presented a lecture that there were only faces of people. How do you reconcile the fact that everything seems to be personality driven while the system is not? Exactly. There's a crisis of representation. There's a real problem with the way Israeli politics is structured now, and we are heading towards a, a point where a lot of the representation mechanisms do not work anymore. A lot of this fragmentation you see on the right has to do exactly with that. that the right in Israel has won, but right-wingers specifically are underrepresented. It's, it's true, so a lot of their representatives... So, for example, uh, these people are struggling to represent a very diverse type of right-wingers, and, and, and for example, it was, uh, for many years we all assumed that the right was religious. You can't see us too far because that turned out to be false. So th there is a very big question of how representation works, and in that sense, Israeli's, the structure of Israeli politics is geared towards parties, but a lot of the discourse is becoming much more personal. That's why a lot of people are now joining parties, not because they want to join the party themselves, but they want to vote within the party, because actually that's what matters, right? If I was a member of the Likud, I could have some influence over who's after me, and then I could maybe get some sense of representation. So I could maybe have someone like me there. So you see more of that happen. Yes. What about the list? Um, the not, not the Arab list. No, like the list of who who else is in the party. You have number one. You have number two. The roster. Three. Yeah. How do I know who those people are? Amazing question. You wait a day and a half until Thursday evening. Oh, no, two days, sorry. Uh, on Thursday, by midnight, all parties in Israel have to register. Register means they have to say what their name is, what letters they're going to run with the Knesset, and who is on their list. Uh, for many, many years, all these lists were set up in a very democratic way. They were what we call prime, prime, 
primary, yeah? Uh, this is kind of shifted out of fashion in Israel, and I mean that not in a negative way. And only three parties currently do primaries, so that's Likud, Netanyahu's party, uh, Labour, uh, Gabbai's party, and which is just historically done so. And for the first time ever, Meretz has also now done uh, primaries. Uh, the rest are usually just done in a kind of like the leader, that's kind of exactly your question, the leader of the party kind of just, you know, builds his own, his own kind of group of... Uh, yeah. the there was no primaries because the Meshutetik is not a party, it's a combination of three different parties. Some one of the Hadash do primaries, yes, and Barat also do primaries, but Ramtal do not do primaries. Uh, and the, the way these amalgamate, like these parties that are merged together, work is that they do what what, what in Hebrew we call reach rich reach zipper. So you, you merge the party together, and then one you, one me. So who you, who you get the Any other questions? Yes. How do campaign contributions work in Israel? Are there limits? Mm. And does it really matter that much if there aren't many screen voters? Wow, that's a really good question. I actually don't know the answer to that. It's not campaign finance is actually not that big of an issue in Israel in the sense where it's not like you know, I don't actually know the answer to that. I won't make something up. Like, I'm not sure. There are, I know there are rules about, like, each party gets a fixed sum from the government. And they're not supposed to spend more than that. <laughs> so, Bibi's patron owns a newspaper. <laughs> and Gabai and the left have his Yotachonot in their pocket. And Haaretz is gunning for, you know, the liberal camp. So, I don't know how to actually, like... There's nothing. I know that there are like, I don't think Sheldon Ellison is pouring money into Bibi's private account. And that's not what's happening. So you don't have this like very bastardized, Americanized, American thing where you have these like super packs and they're like people buying ads for secret behind the scenes. Like it's pretty out in the open, most of the stuff. And, and I think there are some irregularities, but it mostly has to do with like, you know, the way contributions are raised. I don't think it's that big of a, or I don't know it to be that big of a story and I haven't heard it covered or debated in an extensive way as a journalist ever, so. Yeah. Oh, you already asked a question. Hold on, but is there anyone else who has not yet asked a question? Sure. Ah, that's good. I'm sorry, the light's running. Uh, so you said that, you know, the two-states um, question is not a question anymore. Yep. It doesn't exist. Yep. Um, and everything you said was, like, very uh, Israel-centered. Yeah. Uh, Does uh, the place of Israel and the word matter in Israeli politics now? Yes, very From right. a different, you know, from an outside politics, like... Absolutely. You hear about Iran all the time, you yep. hear about, like, China is a yep. two-state solution organization, they advocate for two states. Who, China? China, yeah. Uh, well, you know, one, one belt, one road. They advocate for money. <laughs> <laughs> and they advocate for building Israel's port in the Shod. And then they advocate yeah. for making sure that we all have Huawei telephones so they can transmit what we're saying to China. Well, well details, like, does, does work politics matter to Israel's um, I'll say this. We need to be very careful when we ask those kind of questions between what is actually uh, the, the political question and what we seem to assume. Like, I didn't mean to be nasty about China. China is not interested in the two-state solution. China is a pragmatic country that is not interested in exporting any specific ideology. So yes, at the UN level, they vote for the two-state solution, but it's not, it's not on their agenda. Russia also is officially two-state solution. That's not, that's not, it's not, they're not America, they're not Europe, they're not, it's not contingent on that. The ties between them are not contingent on that per se. So Israel's standing in the world matters to us a lot. But, ironically, believe it or not, Israel's standing in the world has never been better. And Israel is, I think, uh, after years where there was a sense that there could be a diplomatic tsunami and they would face boycotts, this is not happening. I cannot stress how 
how fake a demon the BDS is. And the BDS sucks if you're a liberal student in a U.S. college. That's like the only point in your life that it can affect you. If you're an Israeli dancer or an academic, or in other words, if you're left-wing, you also pay a price for this because you're being boycotted by people. But beyond that, it makes no, it has zero influence on the Israeli economy. It's not a real political issue beyond this demon that Netanyahu has turned it into Israel standing in the world. Like you look at Iran, Israel got exactly what it wanted. And they lobbied against the Iran deal, made a shit show of it by going to the US Congress and literally undermining Obama's foreign policy. Lost because they made the Iran deal. And then Trump reversed it because he has no foreign policy. And Netanyahu is his ambassador in Washington. Netanyahu's ambassador to Washington, Ron Dermer, is literally the strongest person in the diplomatic scene, arguably in the world today. Ron Dermer is, I've seen this term used, is considered the strongest ambassador in the, U, in, in the US, in DC. And he has meetings with Gulf states, yeah? So for example, Gulf states are like, you know, Israel's like prize, right? We want to get ties with Gulf states because we want to show that we can have ties with Arab countries even though without making peace. So besides this happening out in the open, Israel has pretty much ties with this country, yeah? You know why? Because they love our suicide drones. We don't know how efficient our suicide drones are. <laughs> and our spyware. So this BDS stuff and this kind of like, ah, what's going to be with Israel? What will be, like, it's not, no one is acting on it. Like if, if there was some level that anyone would be paying any kind of price for it, then maybe, but it, it's not. Like besides the occasional UN thing that you get called out and someone sends you a nasty letter, no one is actually doing anything with this. Quite the opposite. It looks that there's a whole bunch of far-right European leaders that starting from Austria and going all the way to, to like the Vitovrad group that have zero issue with this. Zero issue with this. And will come here and do bilateral trade with, trade with them. Cyprus. Cyprus does not care about the occupation. Cyprus wants to do gas deals with Israel. Okay? So, yes, at some level, Israel's standing is something, but Israel's standing has never been better. Now, in that sense, is genuinely a genius. He's managed to teach the world that it doesn't matter to forgive our sins. One last question. Yeah, one last question. Yeah. yeah. I work in the news, I'm dead inside, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering what keeps you up at night about this. Do you really want me to answer? Can I answer like fully honestly? Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. I'm genuinely concerned about the apartheid. Like I feel that Israel is actually heading towards apartheid. I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're really heading towards there in a really bad sense. And that frightens me to the depth of my soul. Um, because I see its manifestation start playing out already in Israeli politics. So those of you who have been here for a few years might remember that there was a huge storm around the asylum seekers, yeah? yeah. Uh, Israel didn't have this kind of European-style racism. This is new to Israel. Uh, Israel racism has always been, or like tensions between groups have always been, even if I didn't agree with it, have been have based on some real conflict, religious, ethnic, you know, our, our, our beef with the Palestinians is a fundamental one. Maybe I support their rights, but I understand, I accept that there are people who think otherwise for me, and I accept their positions, is that if you've lost a son in war, I get why you don't think Israel should make peace with Hezbollah. I get that. If you are from Ranana, and you don't like black people because you've never seen black people, that shit is unforgivable to me. Unforgivable. Like, that is Israel becoming, like, the kind of racism that they, they have in Europe, which is, we know, not the good kind of racism. That's the, that's the slippery slope racism. Um, and uh, it reminded me, and this is a very personal experience of myself that I'll share with you, like when I was, um, I reached this understanding when I was with the student exchange program in Austria, um, and even though I'm a white guy, as you might have noticed, in Austria I don't pass as white. 
Uh, and the first time I experienced that kind of very generic, boring racism where you're like, oh, you're brown, please don't be nice to me, it, I understood how dangerous it is. And, I, and for the first time I'm seeing that in Israel, like we didn't have that 10 years ago. Like our racism was not justified, but it was justifiable. And it's no longer justifiable. No, no, apartheid, I mean Israel as in annexing the West Bank and having a situation where we control uh, the Palestinians in the West Bank, even though they don't have voting rights. And apartheid in that sense. And apartheid is in two legal systems for two people based on ethnicity. Um, and we do have that already in very small instances. So, for example, if I am driving in the West Bank and I crash my car and I kill someone, a different rule of law applies to me than if I'm a Palestinian who crashes his car at the same place. So that's very... Um, so that's very problematic, but that's a temporary situation in the West Bank, and it does not affect Israel at large. Also, I, 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 I find comfort in the fact that Israeli law does not apply to the West Bank. That Israel is currently not an apartheid state in the sense where we do not have, like, it's not that this, there's, there's actually a different legal system out there in that way, because it's temporary. If they were to express, expand Israeli law to the West Bank, that would be an issue for me. Other people, not so much, maybe for them. Um, I think the peace thing is something that we all have to kind of have a real deep breath about and kind of think about because I think there is a very superficial discourse around it. Like, also, check yourself. Like, if you're just asking about peace, try to think about what that actually means. Like, how does that look like in a scenario today where Israel has actually you know, won by all accounts, by all military accounts? There's no, like for me and the Obama growing up, terrorism was actually something that we suffered from. Like we, like we grew up, we, have, we didn't take buses when we were in high school, because buses were blowing around, blowing up. This, does not, this doesn't happen in Israel anymore. It was a very, very safe country. Uh, our crime is very low. Our quality of life is very, very high. We live in safety. I live in complete safety. Nothing is threatening me. I lived for a while near the Gaza border, and I experienced rockets, and that was horrible. It's a horrible way to live. I would never go back to living that way. And that's insane that people live that way. And it's horrible. But beyond those small kind of areas where there's friction, there's nothing, like, there's no price, like, Israel is completely one. Like, there's a, and the question of what peace actually means is a very fundamental one. Like, we have to ask ourselves, what does that actually mean? Because for Israelis, Israelis already live in peace. Like, we live in peace, you live in peace. So, yeah? Yeah, it's just that I know you said last question, right. but uh, when you said mm -hmm. here about the peace, that you fully feel that you live in peace, right? Mm -hmm. We had a speaker a few months ago, I think, Emily Kanban, right? Mm -hmm. Who, uh, I was asking him, like, what was the final driver of the Israeli when it comes to voting? And he was saying, as a kind of semi-joke, well, six months before the election, you will have a war. And in the end, all the Israeli elections that you know will just end up fighting, right? Because they are afraid yeah. for their own safety. So when you say, I feel in complete peace, is this completely true? And, uh, like um, the, and then there was all this story of, like, narrative, narrative of fear. Did you build that narrative? Yeah, sure, sure. Right? I think most Israelis live in fear, and that's the truth. I don't. I think I'm, I'm unique, and I'm very privileged because I'm very aware of my of my own political thing. So I'm, yes, I, I I live in safety because I'm generally very critical towards the government narrative, um, and I and I also feel that generally, if you look at Israel's wars, we haven't actually had a real war in quite some quite some time now. So the last war that we had, the real war, was in 2009, uh, 2006. Was that it? Um, and that was bad. I didn't. I would never say at that time that Israel was in peace. It was horrible to have rockets coming down from all the way to Lebanon, uh, reaching all the way to like you know north of Tel Aviv. It's crazy. Uh, I would you know to have people you know flee their homes. Crazy, regardless of like the reason of the war. 
Uh, and there is some level where that can ha that, that can happen again. By the way, I'll say that I think a lot of the Gantz people, one of their biggest arguments against Netanyahu, and I think that's a very strong argument, they say, you wasted years of peace. If there was peace, we could have leveraged that to, 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 make, to better our situation and make it more sustainable, but you decided to not do that. You decided to wait and see what would happen. And what ended up happening is that, like it's right, Syria took place, which completely changed the region and really turned it, turned it into Israel's benefit, in a sense. But you know, our biggest real enemy, Hezbollah, is now finished fighting the war for Assad in Syria, and is now going back to Dhaka in South Lebanon, and Baalbek, and going into Lebanon. This is going to be a problem, for sure. This is a real problem for Israel, 100%. This, this could turn into something real. And by the way, really bad things can happen. So then they can fire rockets on our ammonium tanks in Haifa and blow Haifa up to literally to, to, to heaven, to high heaven. So that's a real thing that can happen. Um, I, I just mean that I think Israel is very, like generally things are very safe. Like uh, at a very kind of boy, childish level, I'm really impressed by the Iron Dome thing. Like there's something really impressive about something that knocks other rockets out in the sky. So like that gives me, I've also seen it work. So it's very, like, I lived in the South under rockets and then experienced Iron Dome being introduced into kind of our safety, uh, into our defense mechanisms. And it's, it's, it's the difference between life and death, like it's the difference between going crazy and not. Uh, so maybe that will change. Netanyahu has tried to actually start wars in the past to get things happen. They don't really work that well because we don't really have real wars anymore. So it's not really that heroic when you're bombing Gaza and they're shooting pipes at you. It's like you don't the, the heroism in that fades very quickly. So he, he stopped doing that if you notice. Like we had a lot of other wars. They always correlated to elections, and that's kind of faded over time because it's now just people are like in the south are like okay they're, they're rockets. Let me stop it. Really, one more question. That's it. Okay, um, what are you hoping for? What's the next time you're hoping for? Listen, I'm flying to India in a week. I'm hoping not to get sick. Uh, <laughs> uh, what am I hoping for? I'm hoping for the. I'm hoping. Like, you know, this is an election. I'm kind of like. There's people from Turkey here. I have one dream. The Tel Aviv will live to be the age of Istanbul. That is my hope. It will be a Jewish state, Palestinian state, Persian state, Lebanese state, greater Cyprus state, and Mediterranean state. I don't know, but I'm, in that sense, I've, 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 I'm, I'm a very classic representation of this wider kind of representation issue. I, 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 I I'm Israeli, and, I'm, and, I, and I don't, I'm not embarrassed in being Israeli, but I'm more Tel Aviv than I am Israeli. In that sense, my identity is local. I'm from Tel Aviv. I love Tel Aviv. I hope Tel Aviv survives, and I'll fight for Tel Aviv to survive. The rest of the country will have to force me. <laughs> Tough. I think that's it.